is really annoying. Yeah. It's like, it's like constant. I want to pull my hair out. I kind of feel like it's a Yates O'Hara. No, I feel like it's just, it's like. Okay. Do you want to know where the Yitzhahara exists? Yeah. In your heart. I thought the Nefesh of Bahamas is in your heart. And the Yitzhahara. Oh. The Yitzhahara was like external. I should give oh, you the yeah. Tanya comics in Hebrew. They're great. I want that. What? Really? Yeah. Wait, so exactly something that came up in. What? Can you speak up, please? <laughs> that came up in. Initial inclination is to say um, that we will get to that later in time. That you're good or you're evil inclination? That's my initial inclination. <laughs> Based on an old six story, that would have to be my good inclination as well. Um, but my second inclination is to say that it's complicated. Um, and I think going anything beyond that will end up hijacking a lot of time from the class. But they can be used as synonyms, but they're often not being used as synonyms. We'll leave it at that. Okay. So, so we learned that in chapter two, we learned two basic ideas. Number one, we all have a godly soul. The godly soul is just as godly as God. Number two, the godly souls are different and they come in hierarchies. And we outlined three hierarchies. The hierarchy over history where you have the souls of the patriarchs and Moshe at the top and the souls of our generation where? At the bottom. At the bottom. And the analogy for that is like a head versus the feet. Then you have within one generation, there are the heads of the generation and the feet of the generation. And again, that's a hierarchy where some souls are like the head and other souls are like the feet. Which means I guess the Jewish people are kind of like some crazy millipede because you've got very few heads a lot of feet ratio. Yeah. I always found that kind of disturbing, but okay. What's disturbing about millipedes? It's a matter. It's a it's, it's a matter of your subjective experience. I find millipedes and rather disgusting. Remember when we were saw those? Those were people. people. Right. Okay. And the last was we spoke about the hierarchy within an individual Jew that our souls have three distinct levels. In nefesh, which is all about connecting to Hashem through behavior. Ruach, which is about connecting to Hashem through the intensity of the emotional experience, which is a higher level in the sense that it is a deeper connection and you can only get to Ruach if you've already... You can only get to Ruach if you've already completed your nefesh. And finally, Neshama, which is connecting 
to Hashem through the intellect, which we did not elaborate too much on, and that is the highest form of connection, but that can only happen once you've completed the Ruach. And again, that doesn't mean that Nefesh is only behavior, Ruach is only emotion, and Neshama is only intellect. It means that that is the, the focus, that is the point of connection. We spent like two classes on that. Behavior, emotion is Ruach? Emotion is Ruach. Right. But Ruach is not the same thing as emotion. It's connecting through emotion. Yeah. So you're talking about this very sequentially. Uh, it is very sequential. But it's, it's hard for me to accept that like your behavior has to be 100% perfect before you can connect emotionally. Like It seems like it's a little more fluid than that. Like Your behavior is great in this aspect, but not in this aspect. And so therefore you can ask, ask this emotion in this way, but not yet. Emotion. Right, but remember, Nefesh has emotion. Nefesh has emotion. The, the, the difference is, is whether, where is, where, what is actually creating the connection between the soul and God. And so, in Nefesh, any emotion that doesn't then get translated into the proper behavior ends up not really connecting the person. So it's not that there's a it's not that it's not that your behavior has to be perfect and then you should start having emotion. That's incorrect. In fact, emotion is very important in nafesh. Also, the intellect, everything is very important. But the kind of connection available in ruach, where the emotion is not a means to make the mitzvahs um, a more complete connection, where, where the emotional experience connects in its own right. That's not available to a soul unless they've completed the nefesh. Now, what is true is that it is individual. In other words, what the capacity of someone's nefesh is and how much they have to complete and how hard it's going to be is very different. And it's also that we have free will. Just because you completed something doesn't mean you can't go back and undermine it. So it, while it's sequential in the sense of that you have to achieve one before you achieve the other, it's not in the sense that once you've achieved one, you don't have to maintain it and you can't fall back. So a person's life could look very up and down. Okay. But um, the, Kabbalah, the, the idea in Kabbalah that there's different levels of the soul is very much ranked hierarchically, which is, which is actually why the next language we'll read today makes it very, is very controversial. There's even a footnote in the Tanya to tell you that it's controversial. Like at one point in your life, you can have 100% perfect behavior and access the Ruach, and then later on, you might fall back and you right. Know, Right, because 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 you have free will, basically. That's. But couldn't you also translate that into like, in this very moment, my behavior is so perfect that in this moment I can access ruach, and in the next I can't. <sighs> Not without bringing sinning into it. In other words, the only way to get that kind of a shift that quickly is to like choose to like go out and do a, a genuine good old-fashioned sit. Otherwise, you're not going to get that kind of a shift. Now, to get, the, to, now, to get that kind of shift where you, can, where you find it easier to feel an emotional connection with Hashem and then harder without sitting means you're dealing with a level of nefesh. And that means the behavior isn't... That means the emotion is very tied up with the behavior and the behavior isn't as it should be and that's causing things to be a little bit chaotic. Um, I would just like to say, again, that most people spend their whole lives in nefesh. Okay? And that, again, so nefesh is not behavior. Nefesh means that the building, the connection, all comes down to behavior. So no matter, so on the level of nefesh, no matter how inspired or motivated a person feels, if it doesn't actually translate into the proper behavior, 
it's not actually building the soul's connection with Hashem. But it doesn't mean that it's a dry and emotionless kind of a thing. Right. But right. like how I'm understanding it is it's, it feels more fluid. Like like the majority of your time in the day will be spent on that fish, but maybe there'll be like moments throughout the day that you have to Okay. So there is an idea in Chassidus, which I did not bring up, but since you brought it the up and you put times in the day, which is the idea that everything contains everything else, so your nefesh can actually be subdivided into a nefesh, a ruach and a shama. Which means what you're describing is correct, but it's not talking about the nefesh ruach neshama here. It's talking about how you can actually take the nefesh ruach neshama and divide that up. Um, which is not a topic I want to get into right now. But if you are interested, um, and this is, I mean, this has been translated into English, but it's considered to be pretty advanced. Even most like scholars of Chassidus avoid this thing. But chapter one of what's called Kuntra Savaida, which in English was translated as love like fire and water. So there's a long parenthesis in chapter one which speaks about all these different levels of nefesh, ruach, and neshama and things like that. And that dynamic that's being discussed as it's built through prayer, that that's, can all happen regardless of what one person's holding because the idea that every level contains some element of every other level. Okay. But at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, the classic ruach is something that you have to literally merit after completing your nefesh. That's the, that's the, that's the terminology in Kabbalah. And it's a totally different kind of a, of a life altogether. Refining your nefesh. You have to... How do you complete it? You kind of think of like when a person is born that they haven't developed any of like their skills or abilities. And like there's a point at which like you master language and you master social skills, right? So you're kind of building up the human being. Kind of think of it like that. So there's building up the... When your, your nefesh starts out as just a very simple potential, simple sense of, of God and desire to connect him, and then you can build that and grow that up to whatever its maximum capacity is, and then you can merit this level of ruach. And that's a total... Like, if that happens to a person, it is a huge transformation in their whole relationship with God. It causes, like I said, to you live a life in a very different way. Um, but by, by saying that, you're making it sound like it's a more permanent transformation. You also have to keep no, because you still have to maintain what you have, and because you have free will, you could choose to break it. So it's not, it's not like a complete X achieve Y. It's like, a, it's like a scale. Like you're moving closer to this, but you can fall back. You have to, let's like this, you have to, it's, i give you an example. In, in halacha, a minion, if there's a minion in a shul, you can do certain things and read the Torah and everything else, right? A minion is made of ten men. But it's not like the tenth man is just a little bit more than the nine. It's because you reach a certain threshold, now everything's different. So if you have nine men in a shul, davening is a very different experience than if you have the tenth man there. When a person completes all, and there's actually ten aspects of everything, when a person completes the, all ten aspects of their nefesh, whatever it is, and that's very individual, then... It's like they unlock the, another stage, another level of existence, that's the Ruach, where it's all focused on the emotion. That, however, requires them not to sin, because if they sin, they'll break the nefesh that everything is resting on. What you're talking about, which is a true thing, right, where there's times where, you, where, 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 you, 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 where you're connecting more emotionally, times you're focusing more on the practical, but overall, the entire thing does boil down to the behavior, and that's kind of the, that, 
from the perspective of the Torah. If it's not translating into proper behavior, it's all a waste. And if it's translating to the right behaviors, then you're doing the right thing. Then somehow it's then that means overall your level of nefesh, even though there's this, you can then subdivide and say there's an element of that's ruach-like within nefesh, element of neshama-like within nefesh. And that's the kind of fluid experiences that we experience. Like, davening is a more ruach time of our experience than, say, like, I don't know, cleaning the house for Pesach or going to work. So, yes, that is, that is correct, but that's not what he's describing here. He's describing the classic nefesh ruach neshama as the strict hierarchy. Yeah. When you bring up the parallel of like development, like a child is born, doesn't know how to speak, and then like develops language skills, we don't, as far as I'm aware, we don't have a benchmark of like, now you are done developing language skills or like fine motor skills. Like we all as adults could still develop our English language skills for Correct. sure. Correct. And we could all like learn how to play a new instrument that would have, be a whole nother level of fine motor skills. But if you ask like, does do any of us speak English or have fine motor skills? The answer would be like, Yes. So, 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 so the, the answer to that is that if you talk about the skill in isolation, you're right. But if you think about it in terms of that these things are meant to help us navigate in the world. So we do. We, we break language into basically um, four levels, broadly speaking. There's you understand a language. There's you speak a language. There's you speak it fluently. And there's you speak it at a mother tongue level. And those are those are actually I mean those are actually pretty clear because if you speak the language at a mother tongue level, right, you can speak it to people that this is their native language and there is no friction between you and them when you communicate. Now, could you, you still have a better grasp of the language than that? Yeah, but if we think of language as a way of navigating relationships with people, so there's you can understand what they're saying, but you can't communicate back to them. You can communicate to them, but you're very limited. You can communicate to them clearly, but there's friction because there's a sense that you're, you don't have the same ease, ease with it. And then there's, there's, zero, well, there's zero friction. Okay, so if we put it in a relationship setting, then we can make that kind of a threshold. And then you can take any skill like that. If you think of a skill as being applied in a context of engaging other people or achieving something, you have what engineers call good enough. I just feel like there's still, like there are still people who I speak to who also speak English as a native language, where I just feel like our vocabulary that's true. levels, and that's, I'm not talking that, about an eight-year-old. That's true, that's true. So, so the, in a similar sense, completing the level of nefesh means that you've completed everything to a point that it, it meets this kind of a connection. It doesn't, there's no friction on this level of connection. Okay. But on the level of ruach, it's completely insufficient. So these, these thresholds are coming not because... So, again, somebody who's... Let me put you this way. Yeah? Everyone heard that there's a prohibition of graven images. You're not allowed graven images in Judaism. You know that? Sorry? Graven images. Idols. Okay. So there's actually, there's actually a separate prohibition of, of... There's actually a separate image of graven images or statues than idols. You are not allowed to own statues in Judaism because they're an image. Did you know that? Now, like everything in Jewish law, there are rules. What kinds of statues are forbidden? Okay. What about pictures? Are pictures permitted? Mm-hmm. Wait, what do you mean by it being an image, that it not being allowed? The Torah prohibits images. Okay, so the statue... Like the Torah the prohibits, eating, eats, prohibits eating milk and meat, it prohibits owning images. Like, by images, you mean portraits. That's what I'm getting to. The image that's prohibited by the Torah are, Im- are three-dimensional images, statues. 
okay? It doesn't matter what they're used for. Now, what about pictures, portraits, paintings? Are those prohibited? No. Actually, there's a different, there's a difference in this of opinion about it. What is the common halachic practice that they're permitted or forbidden? They're permitted because you've seen people have record. pictures, right? Okay. However, you should know that there are, there are differing opinions. Now, in practice, nobody has followed the other opinions, that stringent opinion. However, there were certain people who were trying to achieve a greater level of spiritual sensitivity, and they realized that owning a picture somehow decreased their sensitivity to be able to build up this higher level of their ruach or neshama or whatever. And so, for them. They took it upon themselves to follow this stringent opinion, which nobody else follows, and did not own, or would he not even be in a house with pictures. Now, that kind of a thing doesn't make sense if we're talking about in the realm of in the realm of nefesh. You know, there's there's a certain standard you have to meet in order to f- function properly in your Judaism, and that's it. You met the standard. This is saying the behavior is now becoming a means to an end. The behavior is becoming a means to sensitize sensitize myself to something that is on a much higher level. And so if I were to look from the perspective of what does Jewish law require of me, I would say, well, Jewish law doesn't follow this opinion, so you don't need to follow it. Okay? People that are really living on the level of Ruach, their behavior becomes radically different because the behavior is no longer connecting to Hashem through the proper performance of mitzvahs. It's now serving as a secondary thing as well, which is giving them access to something beyond the regular human experience. And then the same thing would be true if you get to the level of neshama. Yeah. Um, what about in our like day-to-day relationships, like with our parents, siblings, friends? Are we like operating with... So basically you could say that, yeah, you have a nefesh, ruach, neshama kind of thing, which is nefesh is a child. Um, or if you want to make it more, like nefesh is more like an infant, mm-hmm. infant toddler. Nish, ruach is much more child, teenage, and neshama is more as an adult. So we do actually reach neshama level of relationship with people, just not with Hashem. Right. In other words, you can, you can, I mean, not everybody does, but you can have a relationship with your parents, which is, which is really about, you know, having a shared worldview and a shared identity and a shared purpose and a sense of common, you know, origin, destination, and, you know, but that doesn't happen when you're five, and it doesn't happen for most people when they're 15 either. It usually happens, you know, as they start getting into adulthood. So we're just always five relative to God? Most, most of, of us, us. Okay. yeah. Okay. You know. I mean, let me put it this way, right? I, I you know, I, I have, a, I have, a, I have a six-year-old, and he throws temper tantrums because he's six, and he's very cute, and like, you know, we bribe him with candy, and like, I promised I'd give him a candy today if he put on his pajamas yesterday. <laughs> he put on his pajamas. I have to bring him a candy today, okay? But, you know, and I don't think anybody would. I mean, obviously, if that's all the relationship is, that would be disturbing. But that's not like, <laughs> right? But there's nothing like wrong with that. I mean, he's six, right? Okay. But now imagine like. You're 30, and your parents are like, you know, if you hold down a job, I'll give you a candy. <laughs> even if the candy is like, and I want to be clear, even if the candy is not like a, a two-shekel candy, even if the candy is like, they'll take you on vacation, there's something disturbing if that's what's going on. Like, right, yeah. why are your parents bribing you with material goods for you to be functional? Like, that should not be, that should not be the dynamic of the relationship as adults. So the dynamic of the relationship of going on in Nefesh and what goes on in Ruach are radically different. 
You're 18. <laughs> You're seven years away from 30. It's okay. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. I was not directed at anybody in particular. <laughs> the Tzemach Tzedek used to say that he's like a hat maker. Because a hat maker, you go into the hat store and if the hat fits, the hat maker says, I made it just for you. So he said, I, just, I say stuff and it fits, that it was meant for you. Um, anyway, so, so again. It works. Are there times, so if you want to keep, are there times where a child will be more mature or less mature? Yeah. yeah. And is it true that, that on some level there's always an element of needing that more basic level of support from one's parents? Probably. But there are still these demarcations where, like, the, the nature of the relationship is fundamentally different. And unless you, like, do something seriously wrong, it doesn't backtrack. And so we talk about the classic idea that there are different levels of souls. It really is, you complete your nefesh, you merit your ruach, and unless you go out and sin, you shouldn't be backtracking. What most of us are dealing with is that we're, we're, we're having trouble navigating our nefesh in any kind of, you know, constructive way. It's kind of quite chaotic. Good? Okay. So given all of that, we, we have a problem that how could all of the souls be godly and that all the souls are yet so different? So we are now in the text. That is the question. Well, it can be godly. Wait, wait, that was the question. We're going to have the answer. <laughs> oh, excuse okay. me. We are at the line that starts, ne- the line that ends with the word never, which is really part of nevertheless, after footnote 18. It ends with the word never. Never dash. Unless they change your typeset as well. He's 19. So like- oh, well, look at that. Even the typeset is different. Okay. We're at the word nevertheless after footnote 18. Ah, no, right no. after 19. Did you want to tell you? But it's footnote 19? Right wow. after the last root of the Wow. If we did this already, no? No, no, no. And how, I did not know how to answer this on my own, I can tell you that. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so you're just the same line as me and Rabbi Kaufman. Yeah, I'm I mentioned it when I was discussing ignorant. I mentioned it over the... Oh, okay. Yeah, I mentioned later on he also calls them worthless. That's where I got from. Yeah. Nevertheless, the root of every nefesh, ruach, and neshama, from the highest of all ranks to the lowest, that is embodied within the illiterate and most worthless... That's weak and feather-like, in case everyone was right, wondering. Right, yes. That's feather-like. So why don't they say that? I'm what? telling you. That's what the word means. We can feather like. Yeah, but but they say the most worthless. Yeah. And we get feather like. Weak. Well, the word the word cow is like weak or able to move around easily. And. Where are we? It's a flimsy. Yeah, it's a it's a flimsy. Okay, no. The reason is it it actually does connote worthlessness. The word the the word can be used to connote worthlessness. What's the Hebrew word? Cow. Kal Shabakalim, the, the, most, the most flimsy of the flimsy. Okay. Or the most worthless. Okay. Now. 
all derive, as it were, from the supernal mind, which is Chachmila, God's supernal wisdom. Okay. There's a footnote here in mine. It's 19 and yours. It might be 20. It's 19. 19? Where it says, The doctrine that all souls are related and that they all come from the same source was given much emphasis by the founder of Chassidus the Baal Shem Tov and was a major issue of contention between the protagonist and antagonist of Chassidus. And the author will elaborate it on chapter 32. Meaning the... Meaning... Right. One of the most controversial ideas, and it has become less controversial as time has gone on for any number of reasons, was that the idea that Jews are fundamentally all have the same root, all of the same source, in some deep sense are all equal. Okay? This seemed to violate two things. One, it violates the most overt aspects of Torah because there are scholars, and I hear I mean scholars, I mean people who actually just know stuff, and people who are ignorant. There are people who are pious and there are people who are sinful, right? Um, there are people who are prophetic and there are people who are not, right? There's a lot of hierarchies in Judaism. But are those inherent qualities? One second. No, but that's, no. But, but, there is a view of Judaism that, there is the, that the value of a person is merely their potential to achieve these qualities. And so if you're not achieving those qualities or you're not capable of achieving those qualities, then in some sense you're like a broken hammer. What do you do with a broken hammer? You throw it away. You what? You throw it away. You weld it if it's worthwhile, but if it's not worthwhile. No, you just Okay. Okay. Now if you add one second, if you move if you move to if you move cabalistically for a second. If 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 you think about it cabalistically, then it this goes from how good are you achieving potential to some intrinsic value. Because Kabbalah says, why is it that some people are really are able to achieve lofty levels of prophetic and piety and, and scholarly th- achievements and some people just aren't. That's because their souls have different roots. They come from higher and lower places and you're stuck with like the lowest levels of the smallest kind of nefesh and this other soul has a lofty level of neshama. Like, obviously your ability to be pious and God-fearing and blah, blah, blah is going to be inferior. So these external differences are not just because some people work harder and some people don't work harder, some people have better opportunities, some people have worse opportunities, but because in fact, you're intrinsically different, you're just fundamentally less than the other person and that's why it manifests as less. This is whose belief? That's a pretty straightforward reading of Kabbalah if you just like open Kabbalistic texts and just read them superficially, that would probably be the conclusion you would come to. So now to come along and say, no, 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 really, every Jew is equally godly. And that, that idea is actually supported by these texts which break souls into different levels and put them in a hierarchy. That's a bit controversial. Okay. Now, it is not my job here to defend both sides of the argument. It's not my job to actually defend either side of the argument. My job here to teach Tanya. And what the altar wants to do is instead of justifying this position, because the author never justifies, he wants to explain it. Which means, how can we understand that simultaneously there is this hierarchy in souls, and at the same time all souls have the same root, and therefore all souls at some level are equally godly? How do we reconcile those two things? I feel like you can't. Well, the author ever thinks he can. I hope so. Okay. Well, you said in some sense. That's right. That's but, but it's <laughs> saying in some sense is not the answer. You have to flesh out in what sense. <laughs> well, that's what he's going to say. 
Except he's not going to use apples and branches. An apple and a seed. What? An apple and a branch. An apple and a branch co- co- both come from the same seed. But they're different. But, they're but different. there is a hierarchy. Yeah, but that's right. So yeah. they have the same source. Okay. Okay, I get it. Wow, Bob, that's a good one, actually. What? If you want to make it strictly biological, but but as we're gonna go on, you're gonna see that the biological way of reading this doesn't really work. So we're gonna do it the metaphysical way. So there aren't stem cell souls. I'm not saying there aren't. Stem cell souls. I'm not saying there aren't. I'm just saying that. That makes it unnecessarily complicated. Okay. Okay. This is analogous. This is analogous to, to that of a son who is derived from his father's brain. Now, recall we discussed this in the beginning of the chapter that all of the souls relate to God like a child relates to their father's brain. Now, Review. In what sense does a person come from their father's brain? Their essence, right? What makes them the kind of being they are, right? That part of the person, that essence, what makes you a human being resides in the brain, and it is that that the father is contributing. That is how Chassidus understands it, okay? Is there a biological way that the father transmits that? Yes. But we want to, we want to differentiate for a second between... Um, content and the mode of transmission. So just to give you just a simple example. um, I could be teaching you this class in person. I could be teaching you this class um, over the internet, right? You know, at least on a basic level, the information that's being conveyed, the content would be the same, but the mode of transmission would be different. Okay. So what what is being transmitted? What is the content being transmitted from the father's brain into the son? The essence of what it is to be a human being. How is it transmitted? Well, there's biology. Okay? But the way we're describing it is that the biology is carrying this content, carrying this human essence. Okay. And from, out of that is derived, uh, in that even the nails of his feet come into existence from this very same drop. By being in the mother's womb for nine months, descending degree by degree, changing continually, even until the nails are formed from it. Okay, so that's part one of the explanation. How does, so when we spoke earlier and I mentioned why is the mother not mentioned in the beginning of chapter two? Because what does the mother contribute? Body. The existence, right? Which, right, turning that essence into a tangible body. Now, Which means, how would we think of the process of gestation? We would think of that as taking this essence, taking this, this, if you want to, this core of humanity and giving it tangible shape. And when you give it tangible shape, is it just become this blob of humanity or is that humanity manifest in different ways? For instance, you have a brain, eyes, nose, mouth, toenails, etc., right? All of those manifest the humanity. Now, is there any part of a person which is not part of the person? So in a sense, everything from the toenail to the brain is all equally human. 
does that what's that does that mean does that mean that there isn't another way of thinking in which we can't think of that there's a hierarchy here? In other, right? In other words, yeah, the toenails of a person are a human person's toenails, right? And therefore, they have all sorts of. Let's start with a basic thing. Um, in in Jewish law, the toenails of a person are considered to be part of that person. So, for instance, let's say if a person goes to the mikvah, do their toenails have to go inside the mikvah? Does their hair have to go inside the mikvah? So, what does that mean that that's considered to be? Part of the person, right? Um, I'm not making any comments about you know whether this is appropriate or inappropriate, but people decorate themselves in all sorts of ways, right? Do people decorate themselves by decorating only their face or also their toes? Okay, so again, there's a, there's a human quality there as well, right? Um, if if you if something if something falls on your toenail or pulls at your toenail, it will hurt, right? because it's attached. And we're going to get that. So we're going to get to that. Right now, we're, right, so, it, so if my choice is to say, are toenails part of the person or not part of the person? <laughs> then what do I have to say? They are. They, they are. are. Okay. And remember, on the level of essence, it either is or it isn't. It either is a donut or it is not a donut. A cronut. A croissant donut. Guys, what does goes goes back to what? What is an essence? An essence is what makes something be it and not something else. Okay. So, if some, you know, we could argue that there's no such thing as a donut. That there's no essence of donut. That there's just something like pastries, and then like. There is not really defined definitive essence of donuts. I would argue that, that at least as far as Jewish custom is concerned, there is something that defines a donut as a donut, which is what? That it's fried. That when you fry dough, as far as Jewish custom is concerned, that makes it a donut. What about a beignet? I don't know what it is, but is it dough that's... It's fried dough. What about a French fry? It? Well, it's not dough. It's like a New Orleans dessert. Oh, see, now it's all coming back to me. My family's from New Orleans. Yes, yes. It's a donut. Beignet's a donut. They used to have kosher ones in New Orleans. Last time I had one, I was like this tall. Okay. But yes, they're donuts. No, beignets. Donuts. They're, they're in the essence. Okay, guys. When you were that tall, you cared about kosher donations. Yeah. I thought you grew up with Well, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you went to college. False. I did go to college. Got it. But you were keeping kosher. Yep. You went to college also. I know. Okay. <laughs> there are people who do that. You did it. Yeah. Okay. So. I'm probably confusing with the other rabbi who had the Irish Catholic girlfriend in college. Different. Different rabbi. Different rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now, as from the perspective from the perspective of Torah. Sorry. From the from the perspective of Torah, if we want to figure out the essence of things or what differentiates an essence from another, we look into the Torah. We look into specifically halacha. We say, are these two things treated as fundamentally different? Then they have, on some level, in some sense, they are different things, and therefore, we could say there's what makes this thing this and that thing that. Okay. So what whatever if we're saying the essence of a person is being contributed by the father, then that is actually being that is being um, received and brought out in every aspect of that person's body, right? Every part of that person's body is that person's body. 
And in as much as it's attached to that person, it still expresses their humanity, connects their humanity. And, you know, that being said, let's be honest, if you really want to express your humanity in a very overt way, um, the stuff that you do with your brain and your face is probably going to be easier manifestation than the stuff you do with your heel, right? So it is the difference between it is the difference between different parts of the body an, a difference of essence or existence? Is it a difference in whether it's human or how that humanity is expressed? How it's expressed. How it's expressed. So is the difference between my nefesh and my ruach that my ruach is more godly than my nefesh? No, it's that my nefesh expresses it in a different way, in a way that is maybe smaller, and easy, more corruptible and more easily misunderstood. But if we talk about it on this very black and white level, is it godly, is it not? So I have to think, is my heel part of a human being or is it not? Well, it's part of a human being. Okay. Now, the reason for this is because it's, is that you're not taking a bunch of different things Okay? and stacking them on top. You don't take a nefesh and put on top of it a ruach. You don't take a soul like mine and then stack on top of it a soul like Avraham. What do you do, in fact? You take one essence, and as you try and make it tangible, make it manifest in reality, it manifests in different ways. And those different manifestations right, have some kind of structure, come some kind of order to them, and that's what we call the hierarchy of souls. But the hierarchy of souls is in their existence, in their mitzvahs, in the way they're manifest, not in their essence. So is your soul less godly than Moshe? No. Is your soul express godliness the same way as Moshe? No. Is there a hierarchy between the way your soul can express God and Moshe's soul can express God? Yeah. Okay. So that's the, basic, that's the basic framework, which now means the idea that all souls are equally godly connects the idea that all souls are attached to each other. Right? And all souls are derived from the same root. All souls are connected. So the way you reconcile the hierarchy of souls with souls all being equally godly is to say that all souls are in fact really interconnected and attached and derived from one source. And so the difference is not a difference in essence, but a difference in manifestation. Or not a difference in kind, but a difference in degree. Yes. Those are synonymous terms. What? Existence, expression, manifestation are all the same idea because something exists in the sense you can interact with it. Something manifest means it can, it can it interacts with other things and, and expression is the same idea. So in what way are they the same? In essence. Right? In other words, right, your fingers and your eyes are both human. They're, but their their the role they play in being human is very different. Yeah. Yes. Um, so if souls are still limited in their expression, that doesn't threaten the argument that you said earlier about like hierarchies between like, a smaller and a No, it doesn't. It doesn't threaten the it doesn't threaten the hierarchy, but it does say that if all you see is the hierarchy, then you have a distorted vision of things. In other words, and this is, this is very important, is that it's not the case that there's no hierarchy. 
which is what many people thought Chassidus was saying. What it's saying is that, is that the idea that hierarchy versus no hierarchy is a dichotomy and you have to pick one or the other, that's false. There's a hierarchy from one frame of reference when you're looking at manifestation expression, but there's no hierarchy when you talk about the essence. Now, which frame of reference should you be using to navigate your life? Both, and therefore you have to find some way to bring those two things together. I mean, that's what, it, it was controversial because it was new and was unfamiliar. And things that are new and unfamiliar easily, are usually easily misunderstood, caricatured. Okay? To this day, by the way, people often take one side of this argument to the extreme. Right? It seems pretty basic. Well, if, I know because we understand it now. Right. Still. Well, let, 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 I'm, I'm, no, if you know the idea, it seems basic that both coexist. Yeah, but when you start applying it, this gets very, very messy, okay? I'm going to give you an example, okay? Um, I'll give you a practical example, okay? This is like way, way down from the level of Moshe. Um, I'm not talking about Moshe, I'm not talking about Avram, I'm talking about... If you have a question about Jewish law, like a real, genuine, like you don't know, is it forbid- something forbidden and something permitted, yeah? Okay? Um, why should you ask a rabbi? Why not just decide it? Why not just figure out the answer yourself? Okay. So one of the things that's a shortcut is that the rabbi has read through the books and you haven't read through the books. So instead of doing, reading through books yourself, you just ask the rabbi, right? Okay. So basically what you're saying is that you and the rabbi are equally qualified to answer the question. The only thing is that in practice, you just don't have the information he does, right? And now, by the way, there is a shorter way nowadays, which is that you could just ask Rabbi Google, right? Because if you Google lots of halacha questions, you will get answers, right? And so, problem solved, right? Okay. Um, That's wrong. Why is that wrong? Because one of the things that makes the halacha the halacha is that a rabbi actually ruled that way, which means that the rabbi's mind is an ingredient in creating the halacha. In other words, if you want a formula for halacha, it's, um, say, the teachings of the Torah plus the mind of the rabbi equals the halacha. So what if you just have the teachings of the Torah and didn't go through the mind of the rabbi? Then it's not halacha. But you also have the opportunity to become a rabbi. Mm, no, not everybody can become a rabbi. For any number of reasons, and I'm going to list two, and I'm not going to talk about gender. I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to talk about gender. I'm going to talk about two reasons why you can't become a rabbi. Number one, why person, not you personally, why somebody cannot become a rabbi. Number one, okay, a rabbi needs to be able to achieve a certain level of God-fearingness that not everybody's able to achieve. Now, does that mean everybody who's taken on the title rabbi has really achieved that level? No, this is a problem. What? What does it mean to fear God? What it means to fear God is like this. So I'm going to give you a practical example in Jewish law. Okay. Okay? Let's say... Um, let's say... 
you're dealing with, a, this is more likely to happen in monetary disputes, you're dealing with a monetary dispute between, let's say, me and a mob boss. And you've already started to hear the case and you've already read, you already know what the halacha is. Okay? There's a whole debate if you have to hear this. But let's say you weren't aware that the person that I was in a, in a lawsuit with was a mob boss, yeah? And right before you're allowed to, about to issue the ruling that he owes me $10,000, you become aware that he's a mob boss. And then he tells you that if you issue the ruling that he owes $10,000, he's going to kidnap your child. What are you halachically required to do? Issue the ruling. Because to be God-fearing means to fear no man. Now, that's a, now am I going to tell you that every rabbinic judge is actually would rise to the cage and do that properly? God-fearing means fearing no, no That's right. The and only thing... What? And their capabilities? Yeah. That, God-fearing means, God fearing means, you, means the only thing you are afraid of is not doing what God said. That's it. The cost, personal cost to you is irrelevant. Now, if you can't find someone that's at that level, you want to get as close as you can. Mm. Now, let's be honest. Is everybody really capable of achieving that as their normal mental state? So if I'm going to ask a question in Jewish law, right, as much as I want to know this person has a scholarly background, I want to also do my best to make sure that they are as close as possible to a God-fearing person as I can find. And I know that I am not that God-fearing, which is why there are many areas of Jewish law that I am very knowledgeable about the actual matters, and I would never make a halachic ruling. Because, like, I don't trust myself to, be, to, to, to not be motivated by things other than what God wants. Now, there's a rule in Jewish law which says that God doesn't expect the impossible, which means if you can't find someone of the ultimate level of God-fearing, what do you have to do? Close as close as you can. Right? Well, like in the Tanya, Everyone has the potential, but that doesn't mean everyone has the potential to have that state of mind with such, as such a, because it's one thing to have that state of mind to actually get yourself to rise the occasion in your own life. It's another thing to have that state of mind when dealing with complex issues and making rules about other people's lives. It's a whole different state. So that's, that's one thing, okay? The, the, the second thing is, the second thing is the ability to appreciate different contexts. One of the important requirements of, 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 of a rabbi issuing halakha ruling is they have to be able to say, see things from multiple points of view. If I, now, let's be honest, not everybody's good at that. Some people are really bad at that. Has anyone heard of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein? So he, 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 he was once asked by actually a, a federal judge, I think, how did he become the greatest halakhic authority in America in the 20th century? And he said... Well, people come and ask me questions, and I give them an answer that they can live with within the scope of Jewish law. Which sounds simple, right? But now let's think about what that means. That means that nobody's getting an answer that violates Jewish law, and everybody's getting an answer that they can live with. And that includes life and death situations. Situations whether they can, have to, can stay married, have to break up a marriage. These are, not, these are not like, you know, do I have to throw out the... the, 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 the the food that I bought, I'm not sure about the hechsher, it's like not a big deal, okay? So that, a person who's going to do that has to have a tremendous ability to see things from multiple points of view. Now, so if you've got somebody who's very God-fearing and can't see things from multiple points of view, he can be a very pious person, 
but like he shouldn't be a rabbi that people are consulting. So now, there's a real hierarchy here. You, in order to get a real halacha, you need to take the knowledge of the, of the texts and the scholarship and put it through the mind of someone who's truly God-fearing and is able to appreciate multiple perspectives. And then what comes out of that is a halacha. Okay, not everyone's qualified to do that. For by either innate reasons or, or circumstantial reasons that, you know, developing that, needing time to, to, to work on that, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so... What the, now, does that mean that the rabbi is more godly than me? Does that mean God values his relationship with him more than he values his relationship with me? Does that mean his role of issuing a halacha is somehow more godly than me making sure that I you know, do my regular daily saying brachas as I'm supposed to? Is that what that means? No. But it's hard to keep both of those things in your head. It's hard to keep the respect for the hierarchy in place and simultaneously not feel that what your service is less godly. Or vice versa, for the rabbi to realize he's higher up on this hierarchy and to act accordingly and at the same time not feel that he's in any way really genuinely superior than the most simple Jew. So when you take this idea and you take it out of the classroom, you actually apply it in real life and human interactions between Jews, it's not an easy thing. I and mean, when things aren't easy, we tend to collapse to whichever side of the equation we find easier. So people who are more into like we're all egalitarian will, will, will say we're all equal, we're all the same. And people who are more comfortable in the hierarchy, especially for the top of a hierarchy, will want to say, you know, I'm the rabbi and you have to listen to me. And so even amongst people who know this idea, when you start talking about living this idea, it's challenging. Yeah. Well, that's just forbidden. That's a sin. But that, that but that, but that, I'm saying, I'm saying that, in, other, in other words, I think most people understand that somebody shouldn't be, if somebody's taking bribes, they shouldn't be, you know, ruling on a matter that, they're, that, they're, that they have a financial interest in, right? What I'm saying is after the fact, you already, and the, what? Except the entirety of the U.S. who elected a president. With Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I, I, in, other words, in other words, there's actually a dispute in the Talmudic sages how far that goes. I gave the most lenient opinion. The most stringent opinion is that you have to take the case knowing full well that he's going to threaten your life. Just the mere fact that you're qualified to do it means that you have to take the case. There's, 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 a, there's a debate at what point the judge is required to disregard his personal interest even at the threat of his own life. So I, I gave the most lenient version of this. But that, I mean, it's obvious that, you know, you can't be, you shouldn't be ruling on matter if you're taking bribes or you have some sort of, you know, interest in the matter. And by the way, that's assumed even if they're God-fearing. So, for instance, a God-fearing person is not allowed to rule in a case that they have an interest in, even if we would say that they're otherwise God-fearing. We don't, we assume that that's, so like, the classic thing is if they, if, 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 if the rabbi of a town can't rule on on a case where someone stole a safer Torah from the town because it affects everyone in the town, so he's partial to it. You have to have someone outside the town rule on such a case. Shouldn't there also be a rule about going to an authority who has a vested interest? Yeah, you're not supposed to. 
there are a lot of rules about it. Now, will I tell you that all the rules are followed? No, because <laughs> people have evil inclinations and people have free will. And not everyone, you know, and we, we try to do the best we can most of the time and we take corner, cut corners when we shouldn't and there's problems. But as a matter of the values of the Torah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in fact, you know the story of the daughters of Tzlafchad who they complained to Moshe that they should get to inherit land? in the Torah? Okay. So, so, um, so, it's a weird story because Moshe doesn't give them the halacha. Moshe goes and asks God and then God tells them, tells them the halacha. And that's like a weird thing. Like, why did that happen? Why, you know, Moshe knows the whole Torah. Why did he, what, why is this thing he forgot? There's different explanations. One of the explanations that's given is that one of the things they said to Moshe is that our father was not part of the rebellion against you. When the Jews rebelled with Korach against God, against Moshe, they said, when our father died, he wasn't part of the rebellion against you. And Moshe said, okay, but what you just did there is you tried to make yourselves look good in my eyes. You tried to flatter me. And now that you've tried to flatter me, I can't judge your case. But now we have a problem because if I can't judge your case, and so he went back to God and had God rule on it. That even Moshe who's the most God-fearing person, but if there's a clear you know, incentive or bribing going on, then, then he's not, qualified, not allowed to rule in it. Okay. So how can Hashem be our judge in the people? Hashem is the judge of From everything we said about God exhaling with full force and like becoming quote-unquote vulnerable to us, it sounds like no one has as much invested interest in any situation as God. Um, that would disqualify him. The, uh, the simple answer I'm going to give you is that this is, this is resolved in Kabbalah by speaking about different levels of the spheres. And different levels of the spheres relate to us in different ways. And so the level that's judging us isn't the level that's our father. And I'm not going to go beyond that. So the level that's judging us isn't invested in us? Right. And that's the idea is that our prayers are supposed to bring those two levels together. And then God mm-hmm. stops being so judgmental about us. And then we have a sweet new year. Then we have sukkahs. So we're literally just appealing to God to be like, you have a vested interest in us, so therefore you can't judge us? Something like that. Trying to like use his own halakhic system against him? Basically. It's what we've been doing for 3,000 years. It seems to be working. Oh, okay. <laughs> least some of us, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Gemara is quite explicit about this. That, uh, yeah? We, yeah. That, uh, there's a famous story where, where, where the rabbis have an argument and God voices his opinion and the rabbis dismiss God because one of the rules of the Torah is that you're not allowed to use prophecy to decide halacha. And then, and then, and then they ask Eliyahu Novi, um, "Well, what was God's response?" And he says, "Well, my children beat me. Like I set the rules of how this is supposed to work, and you know I cheated, and they called me on it. <laughs> so I guess they win." Um, the idea that you know, we're, you know we're interacting with God is taken quite seriously in the Gemara. Right. Okay. All right. Yes. It's more related back to this. Okay. Um, so we're saying that. The essence of our soul is coming from God. If, like, in the in the parallel between like mm-hmm. reproduction, like human reproduction, then what is like the maternal being that is like refining our soul into the specific existences? Very good. Very good. Um, so there's a second part of the analogy, and then he's going to go and spell the whole thing out in the um, in the analog. But I'll answer your question right now. Um, we've been speaking about um, how the souls come from Chachma, the highest sphere, the one that the essence resides. There is another sphere, which is the lowest sphere, 
which is called Malchus. Has anyone heard of Malchus? And if you've heard of Malchus, you're probably familiar with Malchus associated with the feminine, right? And Malchus is the source of the created reality and all the different levels of worlds and blah, 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 blah. So really, if Chochmah is the father of all the souls, then Malchus would be the mother of all the souls. And therefore, how the, the sphere of Malchus kind of captures that essence and brings it out into all the different levels of reality will determine what kind of soul you have. So God is both our father and our mother, but those are not synonyms. And our husband and our wife. Yeah, but let's not get make that complicated. What? All souls come from Chachma. That's what it just said. All souls come from Chachma. Everyone. 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 Well, no, the question is how we're going to get to that. There's a second half of this analogy. So, even at, at, at Sadiq soul and our soul come from the same place. That's right. That's what we're saying, that all souls are in essence. What? The souls that come from Tao. Um... <laughs> I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the cop out that the Alterba doesn't speak about anything higher than Chachma and all of Tanya. The only thing he talks about, the only thing the highest level he was willing to talk about in Tanya is Chachma, so I'm going to take the easy way out and deal with it that way. Okay. Um, yeah, we're gonna do that. One second, so why did I learn Wait, 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 wait. Yet, yet, after all this process, it is still bound and united in wonderful essential unity with the original essence being, which came from the drop, from the father's brain, right? That this idea that all parts of your body are human is because they're still connected to... What? I thought I read that. I thought I read that. Okay. So the mother, the, the mother is the one that's changing to the, creating the different, different levels, the, you know, the, the eyes, the nose, the brain, etc. But then because it's all still connected, it's all, right, it's all still united, so the humanity kind of flows through and permeates everything. And even now, in the sun, the nails receive their nourishment and life from the brain that is in the head. Right? Which means what keeps your finger human? That it's attached to what? Your brain. Okay, this is going to be very important. Yes. Okay, maybe I'm just totally being crazy, but uh, I'm going to sound like a loony. <laughs> 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 but like, over so the gestation of nine months, there you do go through nine zero to get to Malchus. No. No. Darn. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's more. It's way more complicated. I'm giving. We're, we're just getting the basic outline of things. It's way more complicated. Seeing the souls of Tongue um, thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, if it's like too long a response, you can answer this another time. But can you touch on a little bit more if you have a Jewish mother and a non-Jewish father, how that essence coming from the father like, translates? Okay. So, so remember that we don't want to we don't want to conflate the analogy. We're talking about, in the right now, the analogy of human beings. So in that sense, you, the essence of a person with a non-Jewish father as a human being came from where? 
from another human being. But we're not talking about the human beings, actually. That's just an analogy. We're talking about the godly soul. And the essence of your godly soul came from God, not from your human father. And what, bring, and what, and what gives you your soul its particular characteristics and way it manifests is not your human mother either. It's your godly mother. right? So later at the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about the role that our parents play in all of this. But right now, you want to make sure that when we're talking about the essence, we're talking about the essence of the godly soul, there's an entirely different thing, the essence of us as human beings. Um, and this is reflected that in Jewish law, um, lineage goes back, whether you're Jewish or not goes on the mother, but within that, what your tribal affiliation is your father. So if your father is not Jewish, what's your tribal affiliation? You don't have one, right? Now, that itself is a kind of an identity, right? And it has all sorts of interesting rules and, you know, um, what's the right word? Permissions and limitations, like any of the identities in, in Jewish law. Okay. You know, Kohanim can do certain things, they can't do certain things. Someone who has no tribe can do certain things and can't do other things. Okay. Yeah. Is there a reason we're using son? I get that we're saying father rather than parent. But because, because, Hebrew, um, because Hebrew tends to be a very gendered language where everything is male or female, and there isn't really a word in Hebrew, to my knowledge, classically in Hebrew, that would work here that's gender neutral. So, for instance, you right. could use the word yeled or yalda, yeah. but those are A, still gendered, and B, yeah. they're really only used when the person's a child. Like my kids were arguing about it. One of my younger kids said that I'm, that I'm, that I'm God's yelled. And they were says, no, I'm not God's yelled because I'm an adult. I'm his Ben. Because the word Ben, son, or... are about you? Yeah. That's cute. Because yeah. <laughs> the, word, the, word, the word Ben, son, or Bas means child in the sense of the progeny of somebody. Right. But the word yelled, yalda means like, like much more in the sense of like a child that, you know, has just been born and is growing up. My question here was, you so, can't say father could just as easily be mother, right. it's just not gender neutral. Right. But, but the, son... the son definitely could be gender neutral. In fact, okay. it doesn't get into this now, but there is an idea of some souls being gendered male and some souls being gendered female, mm -hmm. um, which will show up implicitly in chapter 14, which we might talk about that when we get to it then. <laughs> um, but right now here, yeah, the, so, so in general... In general, when it speaks about a soul being a Ben, unless it's specifically being contrasted against female, you should assume that that's actually gender neutral. Yeah. But there's no way to know that from this text, it's just from having learned more chassidus that I know that. Right. Do you use the word child? Because you, you can be 30 could, years old and You still be a could, child. but in Hebrew, the word yeled is never used for an adult. Okay, and yeled. Right, so. But, what? Like kid and child. Like, yeah, it's like, so, so that's what my, 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 my kids were arguing about. One of my younger kids said that I'm the Yelid of Hashem. And the other one says, no, I'm the Ben of Hashem. Because you don't call someone who's in their 30s a Yelid. That, that doesn't, there's a wrong connotation. Okay. Okay. It's very advanced of them. Do your kids also, like, sometimes guess how old you are and say you're, like, eight? No. No? No. <laughs> okay. Don't kids usually get old? My my kids like to like to like to argue about how there's different parameters of being big, as in big in age and big in size, and big in height versus big in weight versus big in wisdom. I think this is quite funny, that they're all not necessarily correlated with each other. That's very sophisticated. My little sister thinks my grandparents are sixteen and my mom is thirty something, which is really interesting. Okay, fine. Biology. And even now. 
in the sun. So the, the nails receive the nourishment and life from the brain that's in the head, as it's written in the Gemara. Um, there's a quote from the Gemara. I'm not going to explain it. Oh from the white of the father's drop are formed the veins and the bones and the nails. We're not going to bother explaining this. And then there's a parenthesis. Um, which ends, so too. So as it were. We're skipping these parentheses. Electric gate? Really no. Yeah, I know. No. In modern Hebrew, chashmal is used for electricity. Chashmal is a word that does no actual meaning. It's in, it's in the prophecy of uh, Yechazkel. He says, I saw something that looked like chashmal. Does anyone think that that was electricity? No. Okay. But when they needed a word in modern Hebrew for electricity, they're like, well, that's a cool word and it has this like, whole idea of like, some kind of an energy to it, so we're going to use it for electricity. Okay, so now, what would happen if, God forbid, we severed the foot from the head in a person? Would the foot still be human? Yes. Yeah. In its essence, you would say that's a human foot. Okay, but... In its use, no. Well, let's think about it. Is, it. is it able to express any humanity? Is any humanity being experienced through that foot? No. Now, do we respect it because it used to be part of a human being? Yeah. Okay. But the, what keeps the other parts of the body human is the fact that they're attached to the head. But a worm is not a person. The analogy is not worms. The analogy is people. Okay. But you would still say it's like... It has that human quality to it, of it like being es- essentially from the same thing. As, it's just not attached. Yeah, but it, but but it's not. It's. Oh, here, I'll tell you. A, I'll tell you a, 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 an important little experiment I do with my children when they reach a certain age. Which is, I I ask my children. This usually happens between around the ages of three to. By six, they grow out of it. But I'll ask them. Um, I'll, add, like, I'll, ask, I'll take their hand and say, whose hand is this? They say, it's their hand. And they say, whose hand is this? They say, they say it's my hand. Right? And then I ask them, well, why is this one yours and this one mine? And it's interesting. <laughs> so there's this age at which they do not understand like, what, like, what, what, what are you supposed to do with that question? Like, this is my hand and this is your hand. The sense of, of identifying with their limb is so, as such, this, 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 it's so obvious and so intrinsic. Like, it, it, it's not something that needs explanation. That's like, it, in those, they almost have a sense of like when someone asks you, like, well, well what makes something red? And you're like, what? It's, it's red. Like, what, what do you want me to do with that? Like, just, it's. But then at some point, right, um, and different children are different, is then they say, well, this one's attached to me. And that one's attached to you. To which I then reply, well, then can we cut off mine and I'll give you mine and you cut off yours and give me yours? <laughs> and, then, and then it'll be mine and yours. Oh my gosh. <laughs> These children are going to have nightmares. <laughs> Why? How frequently do you ask him this question? Every day. <laughs> Every day after school. Wait, what did they say? So then there's a point where they say yes, that that would work. Because they don't understand. And then... I, then they get to a point where they would say no. 
Okay, so what? So if you go through these stages, there's three stages here. Stage number one is, this is my hand. That doesn't need to be explained. Okay? Then they go to stage number two. What makes my hand my hand is the fact that it's attached. Well, then if I detach my hand and attach it to you, it would be your hand and your hand would become my hand. Okay? Then they move to another stage, which no. What makes my hand my hand is something like in, something else. It's intrinsic in the hand. But what reveals it or what signifies it, what, maintain, what maintains it, what shows that is that it's attached to me. So is it the reason why my hand is my hand because it's attached to me? No. no. But what indicates that it's mine? Like if you can't, if you can't, I can feel my hand from within, so it's obviously mine. But what external thing I can use to show that it's mine? That it's attached. Now, let's think of now. This this I do not do with my children because I think this would actually be disturbing. But if we just attach the hand and put it on the table, that would be disturbing. Hypothetically speaking. What? Yeah. Done that in never mind. Okay, but but. But then, but then, what, but then, what would happen? But then, you would have to say like this: to the outside person, it's not my hand because it's not attached. But to me, why is it not my hand anymore? Because you can't feel it. Because I can't feel it. I can't move it. But it's still your hand. Ah. Oh. Because I might be if like, got, oh, that's Robert Kaufman's what? hand. If, if it got cut off, God forbid, God and forbid. then you saw it, you'd be like, that's my hand. Oh, why? 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 Very good. Because, because I would have a sense there's something wrong about the fact that I don't, I don't, I can't feel it. I can't move it. Right, but I wouldn't Phantom be confused limb. between my hand and that's, someone else's hand. That's right. And so Even though I, I don't feel right. that in other, in, other, in other words, in other words, in other words, and this takes it a step, this takes it a step further. My hand is my hand because it's something I'm supposed to be able to feel and control. And therefore, where is the, in order for my hand to actually really be my hand in the fullest sense, it needs to be attached. If it's detached, it doesn't become someone else's hand. That's ridiculous. It doesn't become this other. It does. Seriously. No, no. I, I, I realize that limitation. I'm just talking about the way we normally think about things. You don't get a hand transplant. You theoretically no, could. Do. You could. Do. You could. You could. It's an interesting question. Like, it when do you extreme. go from saying it's this a very, is it's somebody a very, else's hand right. to this? When your cells grow into that and it connects. It's a very, it's a very interesting question. It's but, but, and then when you can do this. No, but do you think little kids are monitoring when their cells grow into it? I'm, I'm no. curious. Like, when do kids... But remember, I'm not... I'm not I, I, I realize, realize that there's a limitation in the analogy. Okay. But... It, if my hand were God forbid to be severed or my finger God forbid to be severed, in what sense do I say that that thing lying on the table is mine in the sense it doesn't belong there? Where does it belong? On me. And, which, and it doesn't belong, and I should be feeling it and be able to control it. And if it's not, there's something wrong with it, right? Mm-hmm. So this sense of it belongs being attached to my brain. And if it's not attached to my brain, something's wrong with it. So it's that attachment that makes it mine. Not, it's not like that silly thing that my kids think, well, if we detach and switch hands, it would be, No. It's the sense, more like what the mission says, that everything has its proper place. And what that means is that, you know, to use this this analogy, if you take a plant and you bury it halfway in the ground and give it water and sunlight, it's fine. But if you take an animal, like say, I don't know, a cow, and bury it halfway in the ground and give it water and sunlight, that's abuse. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? Why? Because it's not meant to be there. Because it's not meant to be there. That's not where it fits. That's not where it belongs, right? 
trying to grow a cow. Right, it's ridiculous. Okay, if my hand is going to be a hand, if it's going to be a human hand, where does it need to be? On the human. So it's, right, and that's, and that's actually, this is what they're going to get to. That's actually what the kids have, the, the kid, when the f- kids give the first answer, like they don't even understand what the question is. They actually have the truest sense of things, which is, it's my hand, because it's my hand. Now, in practice, what allows it to be my hand, what maintains it being my hand, what shows others that it's my hand, is it's how it's attached. But if it's detached, I don't say it's no longer my hand. What I say is, like, my hand's detached, put it back on. So there's the sense of it belongs with me just intrinsically. Okay, so now, so now. Kids have this with, like, gender also, the development of gender. Like, it's really interesting. There's an age where you can ask kids, like, if your mom cut her hair and, and was wearing pants and was playing with a truck, then would she be a boy? And kids will, like, across the board say, yep, then she would be a boy. It's, like, really interesting. They think that gender is, like, a, a put-on, take-off kind of thing. It's, like, an attachment. It's really interesting. Or kids learn everything about the world. Hmm? Kids learn everything about the world. Right. That, that, like, relationship between hmm. something being intrinsic or, like, something you take on or put, like... Right, but there's a, there's a, different, there's a difference because like the, you actually experience your... The reason why I'm using the hand is you actually experience your own hand right. from within. And so when the, right, when the kid has a sense that this is my hand, this is my hand, like, what do you want from me? Like, it's my hand. Okay, and that's what Dr. was getting at here. Every part of your body is... You, you're in it, but, but, and you're in it because it's attached to your brain. And if it wouldn't be attached to your brain, you would think there's something wrong with it. It needs to become attached to your brain so you could be within it. So what makes it, what brings out the fact that it's, it's yours and part of you is it's healthy, proper attachment to the brain. Okay? Um, that's why, if God forbid, like, a person's limb is paralyzed or goes numb it's actually psychologically disturbing it's not just like a practical inconvenience because what does it feel like like there's something about me that's missing now is there anything that's physically missing no but there's the sense like like I kind of radiate out of myself out of my head into all parts of my body and then it's like we have the sense of our own spatial existence within our body and, and this is me and and, and you know, kids, kids have this sense of that. The idea that I then have to explain it in some kind of, you know, why is it my hand? Well, because it's like a part that's attached. It's not because it's attached to me. It's my hand because I'm, I'm in it. And as long as it's attached to me, I can be in it. But if you take it off of me, God forbid, then I can't feel like I'm in it. And then I want it back. But if you have no feeling of it, it's still attached to you and it's still your hand. Oh, so this goes back to, he says it has to be attached to which part of you? And that's right. And the attachment to the brain is not just enough that it physically the blood is flowing through it, but also right that the nerve endings work and can control it and all that. And any of those things are messed up. Okay. By the way, you can actually have it be disconnected from the brain in a different sense. What about a person whose nervous system, instead of not allowing them to move their limb, makes their limbs move in an involuntary manner? It also doesn't feel like they're all. Right, it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it, right. It feels like something is like taking over them. It's not them, right? It's kind of like so tetanus. no control over it. What? No control over it. Right. It's like tetanus. Tetanus. Like the thing you get shots for. Tetanus. If you see people who have tetanus, like everything like freaks out and like it gets yeah. And you could get that from touching metal. That's the thing. Yeah, 
You guys, you're not going to get tetanus. Okay. Like a, okay. But, so, tomorrow we're going to go all whatever, how this all parallels in the godly soul and talk also about the feminine aspect and godliness. But this idea, it, it can all be one essence, but there has to be that continuity, that connection, which comes back to the brain. Okay. Thank you. And, um... Remember that analogy about you don't want your limbs to move that you know in an involuntary manner? Yeah. It would be really it would be really it would be really disturbing if all of a sudden your hand just went like that. <laughs> Without your ability to control it, right? You might not be too pleased. There are like parents who do that to their kids. They're like, Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Right? It is I do really that. disturbing for kids. I do that. That makes for dads.